0: pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am so excited. Today, I have Dr. Kara Wada, the crunchy allergist, to help us all understand a little bit more about allergies, immunology, what is an allergist actually, what are they not, and also her she's going to share a little bit of her own personal journey with autoimmune challenges. So, Welcome, Dr. Kara. Thank
1: you so Thank you. much for having me on today. I I'm so excited to be here.
0: We're very, very excited to have you. Um, can you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what is your relationship to autoimmune disease?
1: Yeah. So my name is Kara. I am a practicing allergist and immunologist, which means I see both kids and adults. I work at Ohio State University, and so I'm in academics teaching medical students, residents, and fellows, too, through my practice. And I, because I'm at the university, I see the gamut and a, a real breadth that we see in our field. So there is everything from allergies that affect, you know, runny nose, asthma, food allergies, but then things that also delve into autoimmune or immune deficiencies. So chronic hives and swelling called angioedema, and then immune deficiencies that sometimes people are born with, or other times will develop over time and happen many times Along with autoimmune conditions, too, which sounds a little bit bizarre when you consider that the immune system may be underactive and overactive in the same human. I'm a mom to two girls and wife to my husband, Akira. And two years ago, in May of 2018, I was diagnosed with Sjogren's syndrome, which is an autoimmune condition that I think is most known for drying out eyes and mouth, but can affect other parts of the body too. And every, there are some different kind of flavors of Sjogren's. For me, I've had a lot of stiffness in my low back that I've dealt with and fatigue tends to be a big issue with Sjogren's in particular and had a particularly bad flare that decided to affect my liver, which thankfully has recovered. But all of that was a real eye-opening experience to go from seeing these things in my professional realm to then seeing them in my personal realm. And to add a little bit of insult to injury, the same month I was diagnosed with Sjogren's, my youngest daughter, Josie, was diagnosed with food allergy. And I was like, wow, Wow. our family just really needs to get our act together. (laughs) Not that we had a ton of control, you know, a ton of control in in that initial diagnosis. I think there's um, always, not always, but I think many times there's a sense of blame or feeling of guilt or other things, especially when something affects your child. So that was, uh, that was an interesting month to say the least. I can't imagine. And I,
0: I always find it fascinating if someone is both a patient and a provider in the same specialty, when you don't actually get your, you don't find out about your medical condition until after you've already self-selected into that specialty. So that's so interesting.
1: Did you self-diagnose or how did you get the diagnosis? So it's interesting. I think for a long time, I was that picture of the ostrich with their head in the sand. Um, yeah. I, re- I remember seeing my primary care doctor as an intern. So it would have been 2010 and complaining of some low back stiffness. And we did some labs and there were a couple things that were a little bit askew, but we kind of brushed them off. I was exhausted because I was doing 24 hour, 30 hour calls and yeah. then blamed it on being a new mom, you know, kind of Absolutely. that fatigue that comes with pregnancy, postpartum, and had a couple other little quirky things happen along the way that I thought maybe there was some something not reading the textbook with my immune system. That's how I kind of commonly describe things that maybe Mm -hmm. aren't diagnostic, but aren't normal. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And um, eventually I went for a dental checkup after I had my second child And the dental hygienist said, you know, your mouth looks really dry. I wanted, you know, do you use any biotin? And I was like, no, but you know, I have been dealing with dry eye. I can't wear my contacts anymore. And I probably should get that checked out. And I think that was really what pushed me to finally advocate to get labs drawn. And so I made an appointment with my primary care and I kind of explicitly had to ask to have the labs drawn I'm trying to look at this situation from the outside in, but I had to advocate a little bit more for having those labs drawn than was maybe ideal. And I think about how I came into that conversation informed a pretty, you know, um, confident, educated woman, you know, all of this yeah. privilege into this dynamic of the patient and the physician and and I think that's really now very much informed how how I try to interact with my patients too, of like, you know, if you're worried about something enough and it's not going to if it's not gonna hurt anything, let's just check it. Yeah. You know, let's check the lab or or whatever. If there's something we can do that is not unreasonable and we can work together to come up with your care plan, then then let's do it because. If it adds to that ability to validate your experience or help you understand what's going on, or we can talk through it, I think it's, it's important just to have those power dynamics Yes, equalized as best as we can. It's never going to be equal, mm-hmm. um, but I think there, there probably needs to be an increased recognition of that and appreciation for that and care. From the physician side in particular. Yes. Okay. That's you know. what
0: I th- I was like, am I being biased in how I'm hearing this? But yes, no, the physicians no, need I mean, to recognize the patient. The patient has a valid right to state what they want.
1: Is that yeah, one way and to have put a it? conversation about it and 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 try to have some dialogue as to okay, this is why. And and I think that comes up sometimes, and I can see the contrary side you know, also of why you may not want to order something, it comes up more often with food allergy. And we were talking a little Mm -hmm. bit before about this idea of food allergy, food intolerances and sensitivities. And there is kind of a distinct role for particular food allergy testing. And so that's where I could see the need for a greater conversation surrounding how will this test help shed light on a situation or not. But it's, it really all comes down to that ability to listen and communicate and try to build that therapeutic trusting relationship that sadly is missing, I think, in our current environment. Everything is so rushed. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: wh- what do you suggest um, if a patient does feel like they're being rushed by their doctor mm-hmm. or that they're not being maybe listened to or validated? What do you recommend they do to have a better, either have a better relationship or maybe seek a second opinion.
1: Yeah, I, I am a big fan. If you don't feel like you have a good trusting relationship or that trust has been broken, that it is very reasonable to seek a second opinion or to see if you can find someone who's a better fit. I think if you know that you have a situation that may entail a longer visit, You may talk with the staff that's scheduling and see if there's any ability for that particular doctor to put you at maybe the end of the day or the first patient appointment um, or the first one after lunch, or if they have the ability to double book or not double book, but do like two sessions together.
0: That's something that Um, I didn't know. I didn't know about that until I became an occupational therapist, that there's different minutes, amounts of minutes. And it's different for um, physicians and doctors than occupational therapists, but that, you know, I realized, wait, what, I don't even know ever what the amount of time I was supposed to have with my doctor. I just, you know, you're told what time the appointment starts, but you're not told when it's supposed to end. So I think, you're right. I know that I think in rheumatology, there's ways to code it with more complexity. So if you're like a highly complex, you can get like 30 minutes or 40, I think, or don't quote me on that, but does that sound yeah. familiar?
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. So and there are always ever evolving changes in how, how we're able to bill. And, and it's, it's sad that it comes down to that, but many times it's power is much higher than us. Mm-hmm. um we're in a, in a similar ways we're cogs in a wheel like most of us are in our positions and there's different amounts of pressure and different styles of practice and different locations and i think that's one of the neat aspects about direct patient care or these direct primary cares that are, have come up is that there is that flexibility that said that's not accessible for most of us Um, because it is all out of pocket and usually insurance is not in the equation. So
0: a direct care
1: is like private. Is it the
0: same as private pay, like concierge type thing? Yeah. It's
1: the new concierge. And there are some practices that are rheumatology practices. I know of, uh, two or three allergy practices that function in this way. And I'm intrigued by it, but I also love that at the university, I get to see people from all different walks of life from patients who are, are on government health plans, university professors, executives, kids, adults, you know, the whole thing, mm-hmm. people are new to the country. Like it's, it's just a really cool mix of, of everyone and, and all the conditions. I love talking with patients and so I tend to fall behind <laughs> a little mm-hmm. bit in clinic, but I try my best. Um, if I know someone's going to take that extra time to, to book it accordingly, But I also am very lucky that I'm in a department that hasn't given me a hard time for doing that.
0: That's, that's really good. And yeah, I know that some patients figure out over time, wait, if I, if my doctor, if I want them to spend a lot of time with me, I have to know that they're going to run late sometimes because I'm not the only
1: one they spend extra time on. Exactly. And to, I think, allow that grace giving both Mm -hmm. directions a little bit. The other tip I would say is if I think it's always helpful to write down questions ahead or things that you might be thinking about. And I think you've written about this a lot too. Yeah. I, I get nervous when I go in to see my docs, I have a really lovely care team that I think it's hilarious that I get nervous, but I think it's, it's again, that power dynamic, you're kind of on the spot, you have that 15, 20 minutes. And so I try to write notes down in my phone And I think that's helpful just so you can guide the conversation. You also may ask the scheduling team when you schedule, how long are the appointments? And that kind of will give you an idea too of, okay, can I I be long-winded or do I need to give the short story?
0: Oh, I really have to practice that. Yeah, (laughs) because I love talking the long story and yet you just don't have the time in the session. So that's really that's great. And I think it's just really normalizing for patients to hear that, like, even other doctors get shy or, um, you know, nervous to talk to their doctors. I think it will help people feel less alone or less, oh, it's just me or I'm, I can't believe I'm so, sh-, you know, nervous. Um, you know, Even other doctors get nervous. So that's, I'm glad you mentioned that.
1: Yeah, I think it's just important to remember we're all humans. And I know for many years, there has been this kind of patriarchal, Mm -hmm. fatherly type culture within medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, But as increasingly more and more docs are women and we have kind of this greater diversity within the workforce, I think we'll continue to see hopefully a lot more of, and I think this is a big push as I was going through school, but shared decision-making and less of that, you know, do as I say.
0: Yeah. Can can you tell the audience what shared decision-making means?
1: So it's this idea that the healthcare provider and the patient work together on a solution. So for instance, if I'm talking with someone about, we'll pick something kind of simple, their allergies,
0: mm-hmm. maybe they have
1: seasonal allergies every spring. We talk about some of the options. So some of the options include avoiding your triggers. Um, you could use like a daily antihistamine. You could use a nose spray like Flonase. Sinus rinses are great, natural treatment, nice crunchy Mm -hmm. treatment. And -hmm. then there's immunotherapy. So things like allergy shots, drops, or tablets that make you less allergic over time. And so we kind of can talk through all of those options and think about their goals and their preferences and come up with a game plan together, thinking about those and the risks and benefits and knowing their symptoms too, I can kind of guide, okay, you're more stuffy. I know you don't like the flow but really that's going I don't have anything, uh I should say zone. I don't have any preference for the name brand, but um, but that's gonna work the best if you're really stuffy. So um being able to talk those through.
0: That that makes a lot of sense, but it's it's uh it's ironic that as the length of visits have gotten shorter, no. the shared decision-making is the bigger priority, which I think is the it's right to have shared decision-making, yeah.
1: but it's hard to do it in a short amount of time. <laughs> Absolutely. And especially as the complexity of what you're talking about increases, and that's what's really challenging with Im- immune system problems or when the immune system is misbehaving because the immune system is so... I obviously nerd out because this is what I chose to study and mm-hmm. find it absolutely fascinating. But it gets really complicated really quickly, and if you're trying to talk about working up someone for an immune deficiency or autoimmune problem, sometimes you have to skip over some of the technical aspects or try to really hone your discussions or your your chalk talks to try to work within those time constraints too. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And I want to
0: make sure I cover, so an allergist, an immunologist, sometimes people just call them, are you an allergist? Yeah. You don't just
1: deal or with or help treat allergies, correct? Correct. Yeah. The training is really broad and I was really amazed because interestingly, most med students don't get much exposure to allergy immunology as a field. Mm. Our kind of sister specialty is rheumatology, immunology. And I say, we're looking at the same coin. We're just coming at it from slightly different vantage points. And so perhaps we're looking at it from the head side and they're looking at it from the tail side, but it's the same coin. And so as allergists, we tend to focus on the immune system ability to make a response to things in the environment that it should not. So different pollens, dust, um, other allergens, food. And we've also focused on immune deficiency. So low immune system or trouble fighting off infection, typically with the exception of HIV and AIDS, because that has traditionally been cared for by infectious disease doctors since it's caused by a virus. I see. Okay. But weirdly enough, so chronic hives is this overlap where... It looks like allergy because we think of hives, rashes and swelling as an allergic process. But mm-hmm. interestingly enough, more often it's triggered by something internal. So something of an autoimmune flavor. And so there's this natural overlap with that condition. And then we know in the one of the more common immune deficiencies I care for, which is called common variable immune deficiency. There are a significant portion of those patients who have autoimmune Issues that go along with that condition, too. And so there is this I share so many patients with the rheumatologists, and um, a lot of patients with gastroenterology, with inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's and all sorts of colitis. There's just a lot of overlap when the immune system decides not to follow the rule book. It doesn't divide down the line of saying, okay, this is outside the body or inside the body necessarily. Mm-hmm. It may just recognize things as the enemy that it shouldn't from several different ways. It's more of a problem with dysreg- I say dysregulation, but maybe the brakes are off or the gas pedal is on. Oh, I love that analogy. And yeah, I
0: mean, my personal patient experience Has not included allergy and immunology, except for just brief testing at one point to kind of rule out like an Mm -hmm. allergy that might have been causing some of my issues. But um, so I never honestly had sat down and thought to myself, "Yeah, you can have issues with your you know autoimmunity that are not that you wouldn't go to a rheumatologist for." Like, because in my mind, I'm like, "Well, I have autoimmune disease. I go to the rheumatologist." So you're explaining that you know you can have an immune system issue that has to do with maybe outside allergens or something internal or genetic that could be Mm -hmm. for that you need to seek help from the allergist immunologists
1: yeah and I think each practice each allergist immunologist has a little different flavor to his or her practice Mm -hmm. many in private practice will see primarily nasal sinus eye allergies food allergy asthma and I think though as you especially if you are in academics, or maybe have a niche practice, then you'll see a little bit more of that overlap with immunology. And there are some allergist immunologists who their sole focus is on bone marrow transplants for these kids that are born with immune deficiency. I mean, it can get pretty super specialized. That was never, I was never that, um, that into immunology, but. I
0: want to make sure I tie up at one quick loose end, which is I'm guessing People are going to want to know, how do you manage your Sjogren's currently? What are some of the yeah. things that work
1: for you? So I love the, the whole concept of the word and. So I love using my Plaquenil or my hydroxychloroquine, which is hopefully going to keep my Sjogren's relatively chill. The, the problem with Sjogren's in particular, and I think that actually pushed me into this crunchy endeavor is there aren't really great treatments. So it's wonderful what we saw with rheumatoid arthritis in the last you know, 15, 20 years with the advent of all of these different biologics, which have really been life-changing. Sjogren's has not had that development quite yet. And so for the most part, we have Plaquenil until things really hit the deep end. And then sometimes they'll use something called rituximab, which essentially wipes out about half of your immune system. I tend to see patients who have longstanding problems after rituximab so that I personally have a little bit of a hesitation concern just from, from my experiences, you know, kind of, um, projecting onto, onto that, but, um, but very helpful medication when it's needed. Mm So I am on that. And then I have found that as I, grow and evolve, I have been trying to set up my daily habits as best able to support my health and to support my healing. And so I've really looked to the framework of anti inflammatory living techniques. Mm-hmm. And there are, it's not this, not the sexiest stuff to talk about. It's, you know, those <laughs> things of like trying to wake up at the same time every morning, so that I, I give myself enough time to stretch to get a little bit of meditation time in, because I know that that helps keep my attention and my brain fog better in check. Mm. Um, it also helps keep my anxiety better controlled. I try to I try to keep a meal plan and batch prep because I know if we have healthier foods around, or a healthier, but more nourishing foods around. I otherwise will sometimes make some poor decisions in takeout mm-hmm. um, that I know will tend to flare um, up symptoms. And um, I worked with a dietitian who I think we both know well, Jennifer. Yes. Who she's really been helped. on the
0: podcast. Yeah, he's sorry.
1: fantastic because she has she's filled my tool belt with additional tools where for a while I was getting pretty um, caught up in elimination diet things and food triggers and I developed some maladaptive behaviors and just, frankly, some fear of foods. And so that has been really helpful to get me back on track and balance things out. And I try to really stick with my bedtime. I think sleep is huge.
0: It's like the unspoken Sleep is like the fatigue of lifestyle, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like in the sense of like fatigue is the thing people forget to look at for autoimmune disease. And then sleep is the thing people forget to look at in their lifestyle. Like, I need to do a diet and exercise, but you're preaching to the choir about sleep.
1: Oh, and I just finished reading a book and I'll have to I'll have to send you the the name of it because of course it's escaping me right now. But it was really great because it had some good practical tools and tips. And it wasn't a super dense read, it's relatively new. Nice. Um, I'll, I'll shoot the name over so you can have that handy.
0: Hi everyone, I'm interrupting really quickly to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap. It's a comprehensive online education and support program that I created from scratch to help people learn how to live a full life despite rheumatoid arthritis. In the course, you get to learn how to manage everything from physical symptoms like pain and fatigue to social and emotional aspects of living with rheumatoid arthritis. I even cover the logistics of things like how to track symptoms and how to advocate for yourself in medical appointments. To learn more, go to myarthritislife.net. So for you, it sounds like going to bed at the same time is one of your habits that helps a lot. And I can stick with it yep. when you can, well, with two small yeah, children, I mean, how does that go? <laughs> yes.
1: I mean, that's the thing, right? Um, I have a five-year-old and a two and a half-year-old, so it's as best we can. Like n- no one is perfect. And I, I think, you know, trying, I got into this trap, especially with eating of like trying to seek perfection. Yeah. I think, you know, being a pretty driven type A person my whole life, like that, I think is an easy trap to fall into. And so I've really just tried to tell myself progress, not perfection. I'm a big believer in growth mindset. So always trying to continually be a better version of myself, but that's going to evolve and change as I grow and change as a human.
0: Totally. And I, I'm just, I'm projecting for a second, but I found Mm -hmm. that becoming a mom was helpful for me I mean, it was painful, but then helpful in not being a perfectionist because there's no perfect way to be a parent, right? Have you found that too?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I think that was a huge lesson for my husband too, quite honestly. Yeah. It's interesting seeing how we all grow and evolve in, in that role.
0: But it's ultimately mm-hmm. the, the best humbling lesson, right? Because we actually can't control anything in life. Control is an illusion.
1: No absolutely and I think that's so important as we think about autoimmune because just because and and I think this is what's humbling and frustrating and and really can tick me off sometimes like we can take our meds Mm -hmm. on schedule as we're supposed to you can do that perfectly you can eat perfectly whatever that means yep um there is no perfect eating by the way um I think you know that but to share with the oh thank you yes yes there's you know no perfect eating you can go to bed at the right time and everything. All that said, sometimes your body is going to have a mind of its own. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I've realized is preparing myself that that is a possibility, but also realizing that if I worry about that all the time, it does me no benefit.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because if I focus on the what ifs, could ifs, or, you know, Would've, could've, maybe's. It may or may not happen.
0: Yeah, and it and also That's like a lot of wasted energy. I forget where I heard it. Someone wrote something like, "You can control the actions you take around managing your illness, but you can't control whether or not they work." And I thought that was a really new. It sounds deceptively simple, right? But it's like, like when I chose to go an enbrel, it's not my fault the enbrel worked. Like. I just sat there and injected it like anyone else and it worked really well for five years. And then it didn't. Someone else I talked to worked really well for 11 years. Did they try harder? And is that why it worked for them for 11 years? Someone else, it worked for two months and then it stopped working. Am I I better than them because it worked for me for five years? Totally not. It's random sometimes, but randomness is what people, doesn't comfort people. They want to feel like they can exert control over everything, but it's this Mm -hmm. balance of, we want to empower people to know that you can make choices in your life that can help you, but also have that self-compassion and that understanding of acceptance that even if you do all these lifestyle things perfectly, which doesn't exist, but you can't Mm -hmm. necessarily uh, achieve a perfect result.
1: Uh, And I I think it's really all about finding a balance. Between all of this. And I I don't think anyone ever is always at that balance point, right? We're always in flux, but it's always kind of seeking out that balance. And I'm so intrigued by, for instance, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, a lot of these more ancient time-tested traditions, their focus and their philosophy is on putting the body back into balance. Mm. And so it all kind of, it all kind of ties together.
0: Yeah, let's, let's dig into that more because I, I
1: love your one of your taglines on social media. Oh, weeding out the woo. I think what I was seeing personally was I was exploring a lot of these different lifestyle techniques and different elimination diet plans and so forth. And many would come out with very science sounding things. Mm -hmm. but as I dug into in particular kind of with my background in immunology and allergy and seeing some of people who I guess would be considered colleagues with particular plans or supplements or whatever with their names on them not seeing the proof in the literature so I'd go back Mm -hmm. to like PubMed or some of these other um, resources that I'm lucky enough to have access to and would kind of dig into the actual need of the science. And there wouldn't necessarily be anything that was in humans or in humans with this condition, or it's this idea that there may be theoretical science behind certain Mm -hmm. things, but what happens in a cell or a mouse may not happen in a human. And so that kind of gave me more interest in kind of digging in. And kind of really trying to weed out, okay, what has some decent evidence, thinking about what has potential to, frankly, be harmful in some ways, and where can we find that middle point or that balance point with, within conventional and complementary alternative type treatment modalities?
0: Yeah, what, what are, since, since the primary audience that listens to this podcast, to my knowledge, <laughs> there might be a silent majority that hasn't t- talked to me, but is is uh, patients. what are some good kind of rules of thumb maybe that they should be looking for? Because it is so easy to be sucked mm-hmm. into some of these too good to be true
1: sounding things. Some of the warning signs I or my little internal alarm bells are just like, Ooh, let's pump the brakes. Mm-hmm maybe not full on stop, but at least pump the brakes. I think anything with sensationalized marketing, I always pump the brakes a little bit.
0: And sensationalized would be like guaranteed to cure your rheumatoid arthritis forever or
1: Sjogren's. Yes. (sighs) Anything that seems to portray itself as the one size fits all solution, I think in the big picture is short-sighted we are all so absolutely unique. You know, you were just talking about the situation princess with Embrel. I think we're realizing more and more, you know, certainly our DNA is unique, our own personal history. Mm-hmm. And then increasingly we're realizing that it may not just only be our own personal history, but that of several generations back with like epigenetic yes. type changes and then our microbiome on top of it. So you add in all of those layers of, in um, potential for uniqueness, individuality, and um, it's really hard to say that one size fits all is going to fit for everyone. It's, it's like that dress that, that doesn't look good on anyone except for like what Heidi Klum maybe. Yeah. So I think that's another thing. Anytime I see a, a doctor in particular, I've seen a lot of physicians and docs do this, but with their name on the bottle of the supplement... Oh. Okay. Or I always just like do a little timeout because where I come from, from our like from how I understand kind of medical ethics, and so it just gives me pause to at least go back to the literature and check it out because they mm-hmm. have a pretty significant financial investment and in, in reasoning for selling you that product. In particular, for those who are in the U.S. that are listening, anything that is a vitamin or supplement. What is actually on the bottle is not necessarily what's in the bottle. So there's, there's no one looking out for you for that. And there's very minimal oversight in the safety. And I have gotten sucked (laughs) into tell a little story. We'll go back to that liver episode. So I, after my diagnosis, I was like, okay, we're going to get healthy. I'm going to do green smoothies. It was summer. I love smoothies in the summer. It'll be a great way for me to get. Some extra veggies in and for breakfast that has to be healthy. And so I saw some really awesome marketing on Facebook because I wasn't on Insta yet. And it was for some supplements that were food based. They were super food based. And so I thought, oh, well, this has to be safe. It's food based. Right. You know, because I kind of knew to be a little bit cautious of supplements and so forth. And I got it. Actually, Tasted delicious. Thought I was doing a okay. But then, in like six to eight weeks later, I had developed fevers, like daily fevers. Hmm. And about two weeks into that, whatever that was, I figured it was viral something. I was really fatigued, fevering, and I turned yellow and got itchy. My liver enzymes were through the roof. I ended up with an ultrasound, a biopsy, a liver specialist, and the pathologists. So the docs who look at the little chunk of my liver under the microscope looked at OSU. They're like, well, we're not hundred percent sure what's going on. It's not like hepatitis A, B or C. It's not the typical viruses. We want to send it to the NIH. Anytime they say they want to send something out, let alone to the NIH, it's like, okay. So I mean, it's really serious. Well, it just meant that they were scratching their heads and I knew Oh, that they don't know. Yeah. yeah. And I, I knew the pathologist at the time I had met through some, some like women leadership things. And I knew she was really great. Like she had actually was one of the authors for a GI pathology textbook. And I was like, Oh geez, if she doesn't know what's going on,
0: what's going uh, on. Yeah. If the textbook author doesn't know, yeah. <laughs> who like, do you go to?
1: I know. So they sent it out and what ended up, Coming back was, we're not exactly sure. It doesn't look like you have permanent damage or scarring. So that was a relief. But they said this very well could have been from either medications or supplements or vitamins you were using. And I was only on the Plaquenil, which is known to be pretty darn safe for the liver. Mm -hmm. And so... In the meantime, my liver specialist had said, stop these damn supplements, superfoods or not. And I reported it to the company, but I mean, they just paid me lip service. Wow. And so it went away when you stopped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but admittedly during that time though, I also decided to try AIP and, you know, did some other things too, mm-hmm. because I was desperate to try anything. And AIP stands for auto, uh, autoimmune,
0: autoimmune paleo, protocol or protocol. Yeah. 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 Which is a paleo based. And I just yeah. and I've said this so many episodes, but it's um, so I, I had gastroenterology issues prior to my RA di- diagnosis because of my history with GI issues. I like kind of I find all these the diets very overwhelming because mm-hmm. I'm I also have developed SIBO twice or SIBO, like small mm. intestine bacteria mm.
1: overgrowth, and so like they don't, they're not all compatible with like the way I have to eat for my stomach, and that's where I think this idea of really needing a personalized care plan is so important.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think,
1: I think it's really interesting. Like, I did a little bit of extra training in medical education mm-hmm. just to try to be a little bit better teacher mm-hmm. to students. But there's this concept that I'm sure comes up a whole lot more in more, you know, educational like programs, like education majors, but mm-hmm. this idea of sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Oh, yeah. And like, I felt like I knew a good amount about nutrition, but I, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And so then working with someone who that's their jam was really, really helpful And that's where I think having a team-based approach is so important as you are navigating through some complex stuff. Yeah. And so many
0: patients don't even know to ask for referrals. You know, I'm telling people constantly for, you know, even occupational therapy, physical Mm -hmm. therapy, you know, maybe if you're having a hard time with exercise or range of motion, you might get referred to a physical therapist, but occupational therapy is we help you with your activities of daily living. And if if you're like, let's say a new mom who has – you know, um, like back pain from Sjogren's or rheumatoid arthritis, you know, hand pain and is struggling with like literally daily tasks, like folding laundry or holding your baby or like that we can actually help you with that. Like you can get your insurance to pay for a session with the somebody to just guide you through. And a lot of times people just don't know. They think they have to navigate it all on their own. So, yeah, you're and you're right with nutrition, too. People think, oh, I'll just try yeah. these diets, you know, not even thinking, oh, I can go to a registered dietitian, you know, nutritionist. So
1: absolutely. And thinking about a pharmacist too is another great person to help you with medications, interactions. That's the other potential issue with supplements is they are just because it's natural doesn't necessarily mean it is healthy. And so there are potentials for medication interactions and that's something else to be conscientious of too. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah. And then, and back to kind of the
0: laundry list of things patients should Mm -hmm. be thinking about when they're seeing these claims about, you know, about alternative medicine um, approaches online. One of the ones I've seen stated with like health, they call it like patient information literacy or health literacy is to look at who's the author and what their stake is. So is it in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, is this an article that was written? But for like, let's say the Arthritis Foundation, where it's an educational nonprofit versus, you know, Joe, (laughs) whoever, doctor who 100% makes all the profits from you buying the book or whatnot. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just thinking about that, that, that motive, Mm -hmm. which is really, it's unfortunate, but it is, to some degree human nature that we have to deal with and we have to think about those things too as we're navigating other consumer you know you're going to buy a new car or you know other things where you have to just be you know Whatever else you know. Oh, I always Uh, get sucked (laughs) in. I'm like, I'll pay
0: you to stop talking to me about cars. I'm so tired of talking to you about cars. No, (laughs) I think it's a very tenuous balance. And I, in in my little rheumatoid arthritis roadmap online course, quick plug. No, I I talk about like balancing being open minded and skeptical because, Mm -hmm. like, you don't know if something, especially if it's new, right? A brand new thing might come out, and you at the time maybe there's not a ton of evidence for it, but you. It might benefit you to be open-minded in that case to say, well, the evidence hasn't mounted a lot yet, but maybe it's like going to come soon. Like the evidence is just starting or is it that, you know, this is actually just going to kind of be a flash in the pan and not help me like how, like balancing skepticism and o- open-mindedness. That's been one of the hardest things for me with living with this mm-hmm. for 18 years. Is that would, is that also hard
1: for you? <laughs> Absolutely. And thinking about like, okay, what's the potential for harm or good? And that's what I talk mm-hmm. about with patients. And it's come up a lot in particular in discussions about the vaccine right now too. Oh, perfect. Um, yeah. and, and talking through risk benefit. And I think, you know, if you can go through with your doc or pharmacist, okay, the chances of this particular supplement interacting with your medications as well, the real risk is to your pocketbook. Mm-hmm. And maybe you give it a try for a month or two, see if you find benefit from it. And then if you, you know, if you don't stop it. And so that's, I think how I try to approach things in kind of using some of that shared decision-making like risks, benefits, you know, what's our decision.
0: So true. And the risks. Yeah. I think a lot of times we think about looking at like, what are the claim, what are the claims around this, whether it's CBD or around acupuncture or something Mm -hmm. else but you're so right to look at also what's the cost like what what's the investment is it time is it money and then how much do you as an individual have like I remember my again my background being in like pediatrics more and um, like developmental disabilities you know I had one client that was extremely wealthy and the parents were they were just looking to they had a child with a severe disability and they were just looking to throw they said you know we want to throw the kitchen sink at it. Like if it, if it, we don't really care if it has a ton of evidence, but when it comes to what they're going to um, invest in on their own time. And, you know, I'm like, well, if it's not going to hurt your kid, you literally have like unlimited, you know, to a certain degree finances and time, then in that case, it's not harmful. Try it, you know, versus, Let well, I maybe know how it works. Yeah. Versus someone else who's like, well, in order to afford this, I would have to like take on a second job or like put my kid in some sort of like unsafe environment or something. And you're like, wait a minute. No, no, no. It's not. So it's very, like you said, individual. It's hard to hear. Right. Cause I, and I see this all the time online in patient communities. Why can't the doctors just tell us like, why can't they, why can't they I just tell could, us? I, would. I know. <laughs> Especially like with the vaccine. I just saw that today. Yeah. Why can't the doctors just tell us all, every single patient with a rheumatic disease? And I'm like, I understand that feeling. Like I empathize,
1: but you yeah. But they that's why I have 20 plus messages every day in my inbox that I'm you know, I'm messaging each oh. one back to try to help because each person's circumstances are different, their allergy lists a little different, their medications they're on, if they're able to quarantine, you know, and that's just for that particular Circumstance, but yeah, yeah, it gets muddy really quickly.
0: Yeah, it it does, and I just i I do hope that you know I think with chronic illness or chronic challenges like allergies and and obviously rheumatic diseases that people over time I do really think a patients evolve to have more empathy for the providers as well because you have a big job you know and every patient should deserve a really great a provider they have a great relationship with and they shouldn't have to settle for somebody who they feel like doesn't answer their questions or you know but also we have to recognize like 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 you said earlier a little bit like we're kind of all in this we're subject to external forces like we're subject to the insurance companies we're subject (laughs) Mm -hmm. to the forces of just our lack of knowledge about the human body that at a certain point there's a ceiling of information that we that you know right that you as a physician Mm -hmm. You don't have all the answers and it's scary to think about that, but it's the truth, right?
1: Yeah. And I think one thing I try to empower the trainees that I work with too is being okay saying, I don't know, because I think that's really powerful. It may be frustrating for some patients to hear that, Mm -hmm. but I personally would rather someone say, I don't know, than try to talk out their, you know, what. Is there anything uh, more you want to say about, you know,
0: advice for patients who are looking into maybe alternative options, whether that's like Chinese medicine or supplements, um, anything else you want to say about that?
1: I think there are some great resources out there that I like to point patients towards. I, for for my continued learning, I love going to the University of Arizona's website. They have mm-hmm. a very well-respected um, fellowship in integrative medicine. I've used some of their coursework for continuing medical education. Great. And they really do base a lot of their recommendations and how they train their docs um, is based in evidence and knowing how, how good or not good evidence is for particular mm-hmm. treatments and interventions and so forth. So Dr. Yu is great. And I love, well, we talk usually a couple times a week. Um there's also an OBGYN who's functional or who's integrative medicine trained, Dr. Ann Kennard. She okay. wrote a book called Nourish and it's a cookbook, ah. but it also has some other lifestyle suggestions and techniques. I've found her book to be really helpful and a nice, pretty quick read. So that's another resource and she She's not as active on social media, but does give presentations and everything pretty often.
0: So nice to know. Because again, the places that are um, not valid have gotten so savvy nowadays to try to make their websites
1: look really valid and look, yes. yeah. And I think the other thing um, that I am weary of when I hear mm-hmm. docs talk about, oh, these are the lab tests your doctors never order. Sometimes there's a reason for that. Oh, like your doctor doesn't want
0: you to know that there's this special thing because it will put them out of business or something
1: like that. Correct. And um, this comes up quite a bit with, for instance, we were talking a little bit before we started, but food sensitivities and food intolerances. Mm -hmm. And you can go to Target now and you can pick up a food sensitivity test.
0: Mm. The
1: problem is the technology, especially in particular with that one, is it looks for proteins in our blood called IgG proteins or immunoglobulin G. Mm-hmm. In a lot of our food allergy research that is coming out in this really rapidly evolving area of study, we're actually seeing that IgG for foods may indicate tolerance to particular foods. So. Uh-oh. <laughs> the science just doesn't pan out when you look to see how well does this help me figure out, do I need to take this food out or not? You still either need to think about an elimination diet or a food symptom journal to figure out what those trigger foods are. If there was a quick and easy, relatively inexpensive test for me to order for patients, I would have ordered it for myself months ago, years ago. And I would be ordering it Every day in the office. Yeah. It's just not there. It's hard. It's hard because
0: I, I, like, I feel like I'm often giving people like truth bombs, you know, that they don't mm-hmm. want to hear. Like, we all want to hear that someone out there has the answer. Someone's figured out the magic wand, you know, mm-hmm. but how to and, and continue to empower patients to say, you know, there isn't a magic solution. But here is what we can do that we know works. You know, we know. Absolutely. That anti-inflammatory overall, you know, patterns is helpful.
1: Yeah. And there are ways to, to kind of hack our ability with behavior change and thinking about ways of making it easy on ourselves, making things fun. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's not sexy, but it works.
0: (laughs) No, I love your idea about pre um, making the meals ahead of time, making it just easy and convenient to pick up a healthy snack. And yeah, making it fun. I, I love, I love that. Anything else you'd want to share just about any topic? I know people are going to have a million mm. follow-up questions for you after listening to this, but.
1: For the most part, I think one of the things I, I really have learned and come to appreciate, uh, most of us don't need a whole bunch of supplements. You mm. can get most of what you need out of what you're eating. Um, With some exceptions and, you know, being on particular medications, especially for RA like methotrexate or corticosteroids Mm. that may require some supplementation, but for the most part, we don't need much. Mm. So I think that's helpful. I love helping people save money. So that's, I love talking about skip the food sensitivity testing and, and maybe think about working with um, your doctor or a registered dietitian to think about what supplements you actually really do or do not need sometimes it's that little bit of money and time investment that really helps provide you the different tools and your tool belt so that you'll be able to tackle some of those ups and downs that inevitably we're going to experience throughout our journey with autoimmune issues or allergy issues, misbehaving immune systems, as I like to just refer to all of it as. That's very descriptive. I think of my two-year-old as I say it every time. Yeah. Yeah. She, Misbehaving yeah. immune system. Yeah. Yeah. Despite best efforts might have a tantrum.
0: Yeah. And that's just emotions are part of life. They come over us like mm-hmm. waves and then they're gone eventually. Oh, I love this. I want to talk to you so much. I want to talk to you about being a mom and all that stuff, but I do want to respect your time and maybe we'll have to maybe do a part two at some Absolutely, point. Absolutely. <laughs> i love that. So where can people follow you online? Yeah, if they- so Um,
1: My main hub, I do have a Facebook group called um, the Crunchy Allergist Anti-Inflammatory Community. And then I'm over on Instagram at Crunchy Allergist. Those are the main hubs. And then I have a website, CrunchyAllergist.com.
0: Awesome. And I will put all
1: these in the show
0: notes. I just know that some people like to hear it. They might be listening with their phone out, just ready
1: to enter that in. Absolutely.
0: Oh, great. I look well, look forward thank to connecting
1: you. and thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the rheumatoid arthritis roadmap, an online course that I created from scratch to help people live a full life with rheumatoid arthritis from social and emotional aspects of coping with rheumatoid arthritis to simple physical strategies you can use every day to manage things like pain and fatigue. You can find out more on my website, myarthritislife.net, where I also have lots of free educational resources, videos, and more. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net.
1: I can't wait to hear from you.